Since 1972, the Pu'u Honua Society has created opportunities for Native Hawaiian and Hawaii-based artists and cultural practitioners. It supports those who serve as translators, mediators, and amplifiers of social justice issues in their community. The Pu'u Honua Society offers community programs that perpetuate traditional Native Hawaiian practices, including ulana lauhala weaving, kapa fabric making, and upena net making. They also run the Aupuni space, an art gallery studio and community space in Honolulu. Especially after August's fires, we encourage listeners to consider donating to the society, helping ensure that these artists and their communities are supported during this time of intense loss and transformation across Hawaii. If you would like to learn more about the Pu'uhunoa Society and to find out how to donate, please visit www.puuhonua-society.org. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. So, this is the third episode in our series that is spinning off from the Momus and Forge Project Art Writing Residency Estuaries, which happened this year in May. Um, and as you know, we're talking to faculty and residents about a meaningful text of art writing. And this episode is featuring a reading and interview with Drew Kahuaina. Broderick. I'm really excited for this episode because it was actually the very first interview I did in the series. And Drew's generosity with his thoughts and his time really set the tone for how rich and meaningful these interviews would be. Um, So I'm Mm -hmm. really grateful to him for really getting this ball rolling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the messages that flooded in from you after you finished the interview. So I'm just, I've been looking forward to this for months now. Um, A proper introduction to Drew. He is an artist, curator, and educator from Mokapu on the Hawaiian island of Oahu and is the director of the Koa Gallery at Kapiolani Community College. Drew is also a contributing member of the film collective Kakahi Wahi, a grassroots film initiative documenting stories across the Hawaiian archipelago. Most recently, he co-curated this incredibly ambitious exhibition that's called Aipohaku Stone Eaters, and it focuses on affirming the creative resistance of Kanaka Oevi, or Native Hawaiian artists. He's also co-curated the most recent Hawaii Triennial, which happened last year, and (laughs) I wanted to show respect to the fact that Drew always notes in his introductions that he was raised in a very deep-rooted matriarchy. Right. He says in his bio that his work is, quote, guided by the multi-generational efforts of Kanaka OEV women, especially his mother, maternal aunties, and grandmother, who have devoted their lives to art, education, organizing, and community in Hawaii. Yeah, so hopefully this episode stays in line with those intentions as Drew and I discuss this incredibly important essay called Carving a Hawaiian Aesthetic. It was written by the poet, author, and editor, Mehealani Dudois, published in 1998 in the very first issue of Oivi, a Native Hawaiian journal, which Dudois helped found. I remember you sending um, a taste of Drew's incredible reading and it being like, 
the best the best recording we had put on tape to date, basically. So I'm super I'm super pumped to hear this. My God, professional <laughs> on our hands. Yeah. So Drew goes on to speak really powerfully about so many different subjects: community, higher education, institutions, language. It's a real banger of an episode. It's a banger, as we, <laughs> as we like to say, selectively, hopefully. Um, and if listeners do want more background, Drew's essay about this text that he's about to read, titled Those Who Invoke Birds Should Always Be Alert, and was published in issue one of The Clam's Kiss. And The Clam's Kiss is the online journal of the University of Queensland Art Museum, which was co-edited by Leo Liashragi, who I think listeners will be familiar with, and among many other things, was one of the co-leaders of the estuaries residency that Drew was a resident on. Okay, without further ado, this is Drew Kahuaina Broderick in conversation with Lauren Wetmore following his reading of Carving a Hawaiian Aesthetic, which was written by Mahealani Dudois and published in 1998 in OEV, a Native Hawaiian journal. Every morning before I get down to work, I go through a ritual of sweeping and dusting, brewing tea, walking through my garden, and, if I remember, praying to the Aumakua. This last act is perhaps the most important, yet the one I most easily forget to do. The Aumakua, I figure, will be here despite myself. That is the excuse I give for my laziness, partly because I believe it to be true, but also partly because the praying has yet to achieve the kind of reality that, say, sweeping the floor already possesses. Na omokua mai kalahiki a kalakau, mai kahokui a kahalawai. You ancestral gods from the rising to the setting sun, from the zenith to the horizon. Na omokua ya kahinakua ya kahinalo ya kaakau ikalani. You ancestral gods who stand at our back and at our front. You gods who stand at our right hand. From the bedroom window of my small house in the middle of Manoa Valley, on the leeward side of the island of Oahu, I can see almost without obstruction the peak called Kona Huanui, the highest point in the Ko'olaus. Kona Huanui gathers together the winds traveling towards us from the northeast and turns them into clouds. Kona Huanui is also the source of the waters that run through the little stream near my house, that my companion and I dug open in spots among the clusters of Job's tears and reeds to create lo'i for taro. I am not sure if the taro will live. That depends on the good graces of both humans and gods. Yet I refuse to believe that their condition is fragile, although I more and more believe that it will depend on my remembering na'aumakua. Na aumakua ya kahinakua ya kahinaalo ya kaakau ikalani o kiha ikalani o wei kalani nu nulu ikalani kaholo ikalani. You ancestral gods who stand at our back and at our front, you gods who stand at our right hand, a breathing in the heavens, a murmuring in the heavens, a clear ringing voice in the heavens, a voice reverberating in the heavens. Recently, I have been saying these words as I work at my table, 
that sits besides my patch of parsley and beets and behind a screen of trees that borders a path running alongside the stream. Many people in the neighborhood walk the path to get to the public park on the other side, parents with their dogs and children or groups of boys and girls. Often I hear them commenting, always favorably on the tarot, but I've yet to hear a single comment on the praying. I think they do not know what it is I am doing. My work these days has been to plate strands of how for the making of a cape. After soaking the strands in water, I twist them into a strong cordage between which I will weave aerial roots of the banyan tree, a traditional kapa design in marine blue cloth, strips of paper with words and photos imprinted on them, and the delicate skeletons of leaves I gathered with my companion one windy day in the mountains nearby. The piece will be called Mo'okuauhau, genealogy. The cape is my first piece of contemporary Hawaiian art. I have made other things I call art or artistic, bamboo nose flutes, ohekapala, kikepai paint with acrylics or bathe in natural plant dyes. But these are largely recognized as traditional Hawaiian objects, despite the use of acrylics or cotton fabric or my Swiss army knife. The cape would also normally be considered traditional, but what distinguishes it from my flutes or kikepa has something to do with the direction it is reaching towards. Traditional Hawaiian art reaches back, or Hawaiians would say imua, towards the things in front of us, with the goal of rediscovering or recreating something from the past. It attempts to articulate its existence in our ancestral language. Contemporary Hawaiian art also reaches towards the past, but in order to translate our traditions into the language of today. Whereas, for instance, with the kikepa I've made so far, I've been concerned with replicating the designs my ancestors had created and used in their kapa making in order to understand and appreciate their world. A kikepa as a piece of contemporary art would take some of those designs or methods and transform them into an object that has not yet been seen. That transformation is an expression of my condition as a Hawaiian in contemporary times, and, by extension, an expression of the contemporary condition of the Hawaiian people in general. I am not the only Hawaiian who is new to this kind of work. Hawaiians who considered themselves artists only began to become visible as a force about 25 or so years ago when they organized themselves into a group called Hale Nawa during the general revival of Hawaiian culture now known as the Hawaiian Renaissance. The Renaissance was largely concerned with recovering our traditions and foundations. Those who became involved with Hawaiian artistic expression mostly dealt with reproduction. But the formation of Hale Nawa was the first time a group of Hawaiians publicly distinguished themselves as contemporary artists. That was in 1976. Other groups followed over the years. Imai Kalani Kalahele, one of the founding members of Hale Nawa, told me in a recent conversation, quote, For us guys in contemporary times, it's been a trip 
from the 70s, Hawaiians have been redefining who we are. So things started changing. The cultural view of our people, the ono, all of a sudden became something that we wanted to define, not the ono of the haole. When we talk about art, what that art as Maoli people, what is our taste? What feel good to us? I like hair, so I'm working on a piece with hair. End quote. Imai's most well-known pieces are permanent marker and pen drawings of warriors, sharks, mo'o, city slums, human insects, petroglyph symbols, and kapa designs. His central figures are reminiscent of the artist, tall and imposing, with the same wild mass of coarse Hawaiian hair, the same side chops, the same aura of strength and stubbornness. In elaborating on his work, he spoke about the concept of the image. Quote, when you read the word ki'i, what that mean? Ki'i, image. Ki'i is take picture. Ki'i is pound rock. Ki'i is also being in the right place when the shadow hit the right spot. And you go, ho, image is song. Image is poetry. Image is whatever stimulates something inside of you. Whether you see it, hear it, feel it, smell it taste it. These are all images. And then Maoli images. These are our images. The European images were color, shape, form, balance. Kamea, kamea, kamea. Okay, right on. Us guys, we dealt with other images also. We dealt with smell, taste, sound. We dealt with these other things. For me, art is ono. Art is not doctrine. If I was to take this term art and move it into something Hawaiian, we know more one word named art. I would have to put it into a place like ono. And for me, what that is, is dealing with stuff that's more primal than intellectual. For me, if we go and call something art, if no more ihi, you might as well sell coke, big pens. Because nice image looks sharp, heavy like that. But if the thing no say nothing, it's like saying plop, plop, fizz, fizz. So for me, art gotta make the honor, cause if not, it's all bourgeois stuff, end quote. Both Hawaiians and non-Hawaiians have agonized over the absence of a Hawaiian equivalent to the word art. Some have simply concluded that because there was no concept in ancient Hawaii of an object judged on its formal and aesthetic qualities alone, there was therefore no such thing as art. That logic fails to appreciate the fact that while aesthetic quality was most decidedly important to ancient Hawaiian sensibilities, it also functioned in conjunction with a practical, spiritual, or symbolic capacity, whether secular or sacred. The same was true for the word artist. Individuals were recognized as being good at hana no eao, or skilled work, but their activities were appreciated for their functional as well as aesthetic strengths. One of the important things about contemporary Hawaiian artists is that although they define themselves as such, as distinguished from the skilled workers of the world of their ancestors or even from the traditional artists of today, there is a sensibility among many of them that equally distinguishes them from the Western artists. P.E.K.A. Clark, teacher of the first course in contemporary Hawaiian art, taught at the university level and in which I am currently a student, speaks about the distinction in terms of a lived cultural difference. 
His course became the battleground for the deep discontent long harbored among Hawaiian art students regarding the underlying assumption of the University of Hawaii's art department that Hawaiians only produced folk art, never fine art. Quote, the course, I think, has been in the minds and hearts of many Hawaiians who've passed through this particular department, end quote. Pi'ikea told me one day when I went to visit him in the fiber arts lab where he was simmering a large pot of stewy-smelling wauke, which he would later transform into sheets of cloth. Quote, and they've benefited by what the departments had to offer them, but at a certain point in their growth, they recognized that what they were being fed was an external point of view, one that was imposed on them from an American curriculum in American philosophy of our curriculum. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I suppose questions were being raised in many of our people who'd gone through here. Questions like, what about our own? What about our own aesthetic? What about our own condition? What about our own culture, which is 2,000 years old? Why is it that in the art department of the University of Hawaii, only one course existed before this course that was dedicated to Hawaiian culture and that course is in art history, and it goes from about 1778 back as far as it can go, meaning that our culture and our people no longer exist as a living, breathing body. That course is looking at our people, at our culture, as if it were frozen in time, very much an anthropological view of us. And while the professor does the best that she can, the professor is from somewhere else, she can't but treat the subject matter as an observer rather than as a practicing member, a practicing member of that society, end quote. Although Pi'ikea insists that the Hawaiian art community, and he always uses this phrase as if it were a coherent whole, refuses to define contemporary art in terms of giving restraint to its form, he is equally insistent that there is what might be called a genealogical difference between Hawaiian artists who participate in a Western tradition and those who participate in a Hawaiian tradition. One day in class, he brought up the fact that only a single Hawaiian had been included in the art exhibit held at the Academy of Arts three years ago, entitled Encounters with Paradise. That man was Joseph Navahi, who lived in the second half of the last century and who was famous then and now for his brilliance as an orator, educator, intellectual, politician, editor, and for being one of the first Hawaiians to become a lawyer, a position he achieved through self-instruction. Navahi was also deeply beloved by the Hawaiian community, and his death when he was only in his 40s, at a critical juncture in Hawaiian history, on the eve of the overthrow of Queen Liliuokalani, caused an outpouring of public and private grief. Navahi was famous for all these things, but he was not famous for his hana no'eau. In fact, he only painted six known pieces, yet one of them, Hilo from Coconut Island, made it into the Encounters with Paradise exhibit. The title of the exhibit already hints at something not quite honorable in its focus the kind of anthropological approach Pi'ikea talked about when describing the problem with the University of Hawaii's art department. And Navahi's piece seems to take that approach, 
The subject is a Hawaiian one, a view of Hilo Bay and town with Mauna Kea in the background. But the moment I laid eyes on it, I was struck by how much it looked like the works of the Dutch masters. There is something definitely impressive about Navahi's painting, the same something that impresses me about the Dutch or European realist painters. But that is also the problem. There is nothing in it besides its subject that distinguishes it as Hawaiian. Piikea put it this way, quote, For me, Navahi's painting was an exercise in learning through the West, learning his land and what was relevant to him through the West. And so the entire viewpoint, the entire way of looking at his landscape was through that filter. The clues that come to me are linear perspective, structure, space, the way in which he structured the space and captured time. To me, Joseph Navahi's piece was an exercise in seeing and understanding the world, his world, from a Western standpoint, end quote. Like Joseph Navahi, Piikea is himself a cultural landmark. He even appears larger than life, a tall, athletic, tan-skinned man with features eerily suggestive of the ki'i that once stood guard over the heiau. Although the intensity and ferocity of his features are belied by the gentle nature for which many know him. In all our conversations, I sense that he is fully conscious of the kuleana he carries with him as a leading contemporary Hawaiian artist and as an intellectual. He has already told me in so many words that he felt it was his responsibility to bring into existence the first contemporary Hawaiian art course ever offered at the highest institution of learning in the state. The birth of the course was achieved only after a lengthy battle with the department, which Piikea fought with all the conviction and political savvy of a hero like Navahi. The history of discontent among Hawaiian art students at the University of Hawaii has been a long one, but it was brought to a head with Piikea's thesis exhibition in 1996 an installation reinterpreting a myth of the creation of the Hawaiian people. The installation, as Piikea puts it, was more a contemporary Hawaiian ritual than an artwork, per se. Its central element was a 20 by 20 feet large human form shaped on the ground in the style of a petroglyph and using black and red volcanic cinder. Four 14 feet high Anu'u towers representing the four major Hawaiian gods stood at the earth's cardinal points on the extremities of the human figure. A tea leaf enclosure was constructed around the installation, imposing a couple on the area. When the installation was set up in the third floor roof courtyard of the art building, it was accompanied by a ritual of chanting and hula. The position and performance were highly intentional, Piikea tells me a challenge to the art department to reach beyond the limitations of the ceiling that Western art normally imposes. I planned with my thesis exhibition that I would call my department to the mat, Piikea says. And what I was calling them about is that out of the faculty of 27, something like 23 of them were from America and were white. I was calling them to the numbers of Hawaiian students and graduates, the numbers of Hawaiian faculty, and the failure of this department to reconcile its location in the Pacific. I called them out publicly through the venue of my exhibition. Then following that, I submitted a course proposal to the curriculum committee while they were a little bit off balance. 
the proposal was, here's a course for you. You don't have to write it. You don't have to do anything about it. This course is what we have all designed. We've all had a hand in it. And if you just approve it, then you're on your way to beginning, just beginning to diversify this department in terms not only of its curriculum offerings to the students, but to faculty points of view. PEKA also told the department that their adoption of the course would be the beginning rather than the end of the process to remedy the historical neglect of Hawaiians at the university. There's only one point of view in this department, he tells me. And what does that say about the knowledge that they're imparting? Is it knowledge or is it propaganda? As far as I'm concerned, it's propaganda. It's a lovely and amazing aesthetic, a fully developed one, a very intellectual one, one that has achieved great strides and great achievements, but it isn't the only aesthetic. And by brainwashing these students from Hawaii or from the mainland into thinking it is, the department is doing Hawaiians, doing everyone that comes through a great disservice. We're not providing a true education. We're brainwashing them. P.E.K. has succeeded in establishing the course. He attributes his success partially to timing. I just think that the reason this class exists at the present time has much to do with the larger environment or condition of our people, the movement towards some type of self-determination, some type of sovereignty. In a sense, this course is an example of educational sovereignty, education in terms of art or visual language. I feel myself a member of a large or growing group, and I just felt that my focus was more pronounced in that direction and that it reflects a feeling, a collective feeling in our community. And I've had the good fortune of much support from our community and much help just from dialogue over the years about how a course like this should be constructed. But the ink has yet to dry on the pages of the class's history. The department has made it clear that they never promised to continue offering the course beyond the present semester, and for the time being, they are treating it as a special project that will need to undergo further review. In the meantime, we continue with our work. It could be said that Joseph Navahi, Piikea Clark, and Imai Kalani Kalahele are products of their time merely reacting in predictable ways to the great social movements into which they happen to have been born. I think it is more true to say that these men came at a time when they were individually needed, when their people required them to move the community in a certain direction. I would also say that that is art. Art is not about color or shape or form. It is ultimately not even about the thing that gets put down on paper or made into an object or carved into a stone. Art is the life that made that thing of paper or clay or stone. It is the lives that the individual life is moving forward into another stage of being. I am one of those lives and I am convinced that I was drawn to be with those others in that otherwise everyday classroom because our collective energies were absolutely required to be there. I am right now making the cape for our first project, the theme, the story of our ancestors. Before I begin, I try to remember my prayer.
Na auma kua mai kalahiki a kalakau, eia ka pulapula o ko na o iwi o Hawaii nei, e malama o ko ya mako, e ulu i kalani, e ulu i kahonua, e ulu i kapai aina o Hawaii. E ho mai ka ike, e ho mai ka ikaika, e ho mai ke akamai, e ho mai ka maopopo pono, e ho mai ka ike papalua, e ho mai ka mana. You ancestral gods from the rising to the setting sun, here are your children, the native people of Hawaii. Safeguard us, that we may grow in the heavens, that we may grow on the earth, that we may flourish in the islands of Hawaii. Grant us knowledge, grant us strength, grant us intelligence, grant us true understanding, grant us the gift of second sight, grant us spiritual power. In this cape, there will be stories of life and death, birth, marriage, a man who pledged his loyalty to his sovereign, another man who defied that sovereign. There will be murder, insanity, desertion. There will be love and happiness. There will be homelands left, homelands returned to, homelands in which to be buried. There will be stories, many stories, and the cape itself will be one of those stories. The first thing we're asking everybody to do is just introduce themselves. Okay, how's it going? My name is Drew. I'm an artist. I'm an educator. I'm a curator. I'm born and raised in Hawaii. Currently living and working in the uplands of Pu'ohia, in the district of Kona on the island of Oahu. And can you tell me why you brought this text forward? It's a bit different because it's a text that you wrote about, but also a text that you wanted to talk about. So I wanted to share a bit about this text because it helps to establish a genealogy of sorts for stories of Hawaiian art and Hawaiian artists. Uh, a lot of stories which are well known within community, but remain to be taught and understood with any meaning in institutional environments, uh, higher education here in Hawaii. And the text, Carving a Hawaiian Aesthetic, that Mahalani wrote sort of speaks to her experience as a student in the first art course taught at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, by a Hawaiian, from a Hawaiian perspective about Hawaiian art. And that didn't happen until 1996 around then. So. Yeah, it kind of speaks to some of the challenges that we face here in Hawaii around our stories of art within institutional settings. I was curious because she mentions in the text that the faculty or the, you know, the university higher ups made no kind of promise that the course would continue. So what was yeah. the what was the ongoingness of that course? It had a few years of life and Okay then it sort of was neglected by the department and ultimately offered in a different form within the community college system that's a part of the, the University of Hawaii system as a whole. And that also has to do with certain educators no longer having a presence within the department. And with their absence, the course sort of disappeared as well. One of those educators' names is P.K. Clark. And PK helped to found the course after going through uh, an MFA program at the university. And so PK offered it in 1998, that same year that Mahelani 
was writing about the course. And after PKL left, uh, Maile Andrade took over, and she ultimately had to leave the department because of how toxic of an environment it was to her. And she moved over to the Center for Hawaiian Studies, uh, Kamakakua Kalani, and had a, a long and very meaningful career there as an educator. But I currently offer a version of this course at Kapi'olani Community College. It's a much lower level than it was when it was initially offered, but we sort of work through some of the same issues. So it's, mm-hmm. still, it's still around within the university system. It just called something else and takes a slightly different form now. That brings me to a question that I wanted to ask maybe later on, but I'll try to sort of fold it in. The text is about also, and your writing about it is about um, this work of art that she made. Mm. Um, And you talk about in your text it as feather work, but also feather work as listening, watching, calling, bundling, remembering. And it seems like maybe you continuing on the history of offering that course do you see that as like a continuation of feather work? Yeah, for sure. I think if we understand feather work as a form of, of remembrance um, in a genealogical sense, and that doesn't have to be genealogical in like a blood relative kind of way, but in more of in an expanded sense of the family that we choose and that we carry with us. So Mahelani's work that she writes about in the text carving uh, Hawaiian aesthetic is titled Mo'oku Auhau. And Mo'oku Auhau is our word for genealogy. So thinking about her making this cape um, out of materials that were of her time, but kind of calling on a form that was uh, of a, a previous time, I think for her was really about that process of remembrance and of about continuing on the work that ancestors had had started hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, sort of moving that into the present at a time when I think she was trying to make sense of how she fit into larger stories of art in Hawaii um, or just creative expression more generally in the islands. I sort of understood her kind of closing the text by referencing the piece she talks about in the beginning as a way of bundling and binding her story into this larger cape that is being woven. I think through the class and, and the sort of efforts of the students that she was surrounded by, and also um, uh, the educator that led that course, P.E.K.A. I've never been able to track down the work, Mo'oku Auhau, her her work, or images of it. So it also sort of becomes this kind of opportunity to uh, re- remake or continue on the work that she began. And I, I often think about what it would mean for someone to make a cape or to make a work for Mahalani that kind of references what she was doing at that time. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't know, it's an important text because we don't have many, we don't have a lot of writing about our recent stories of art here. Uh, and when I say we, I mean Kanako Ivi, Native Hawaiian um, contemporary artists. So the few texts that do exist, I think, um, become more and more significant with time because they function as those kinds of, yeah, those rare points of reference that continue to circulate uh, that we can all kind of reference and share when we're reconstructing our own histories now. 
Right. Is that maybe what you both refer to as moving the community in a certain direction? Yeah. So in the text, Mahali, she talks about this kind of, uh, I mean, I guess we would call it kuleana or responsibility, but it can sometimes be understood as an obligation. Um, we have an obligation, you know, whether or not we, w- we want to carry it, uh, as Mahalani wrote, to move the community in a certain direction uh, at a certain time, uh, in a certain way. And I think when community or when family asks one to, to do something like that, all you can really say is yes. And so Mahalani sort of talks about different figures within this expanding genealogy of Hawaiian art as being obligated by their people to move community in a certain direction. And in that sense, I think she's also speaking about herself and the work that she was trying to do through the journal she founded through OEV, which at the time was really the only outlet for Hawaiian artists and writers, uh, especially within the University of Hawaii setting. And so, um, yeah, it's just feeling that sense of responsibility through her words kind of reinforces the larger effort that she was participating in of publishing, really making sure that, that our stories continued on, uh, yeah. could be shared and circulated with ease. Thinking about your own practice as an artist and writer and educator, um, that you are moving community in a certain way and taking on that responsibility. But I'm curious to hear how you see writing about art functioning now, writing about Native Hawaiian art specifically by Native Hawaiians. How is that sort of playing out now? That was another reason why I wanted to um, offer up this text for conversation is that we're in another moment within the University of Hawaii system, but just more broadly across the archipelago, where there are there's a lot of energy that's being concentrated around um, moving the Hawaiian contemporary art community in a certain direction. Um, and I would say right now that direction is about um, representation in a meaningful way, but also just a kind of affirmation uh, of, of what we've already been doing Uh, of what we're doing now and of what we know we need to do. And it's sort of this affirmation that's coupled to resistance, um, to resisting the kinds of structures and systems that have been imposed uh, on our lives, again, specifically within higher education here in Hawaii. So myself and uh, some some really good friends, Josh Tengan and Noel Kahanu, recently organized an exhibition of Native Hawaiian contemporary art it's called Aipohaku Stone Eaters, and it took place across six different venues within the University of Hawaii system. And it was really looking at a kind of moment in the late 90s and early 00s where there was this kind of energetic pace of production within Hawaiian um, contemporary art and exhibition making. Uh, there were four exhibitions that took place within institutional settings between 1997 and 2001 that were the first time that these spaces had supported Hawaiian contemporary art. And so we were kind of asking ourselves, why had it been 20 plus years and there never been another exhibition? And so we went back to Mahalani's text as a kind of way of understanding what the stakes were at the time 
and maybe thinking through how um, some of this, the tactics that were used at that time, i.e. a group exhibition of all Native Hawaiian contemporary art, might still be meaningful today. And so we called on those tactics as a part of a long-term strategy to increase representation. And through that process, we were able to, with the help of uh, Karen Kosasa and many others from Museum Studies, create a petition, circulate that petition, and through public support and testimony and letter writing, get the department to agree to creating a new position, uh, a position that was dedicated to Hawaiian visual studies a tenure track position that had never existed within their department in its history. And so right now that's with the Dean's office. It's part of their priority list, but there's so many different layers of um, approval that it still needs to go through that we're not really sure if it's going to come to fruition or not, but understanding where the department had been by way of Mahalani's text is what allowed us to position the project Aipohaku in a way that actually had a positive impact on the department because we understood the history of the department in some ways better than its current faculty did. And that was only because this text existed. So if Mahalani's essay hadn't existed, um, you know, we would, we would know the stories because they would have been shared orally, but we wouldn't be able to point to and reference and cite in a way that is valued by the academy. And in that sense, I think our requests wouldn't have had the same kind of impact. So that's sort of where we're at now as it relates to Hawaiian contemporary art and education within the University of Hawaii setting. Mm -hmm. So not much has changed in 20 years. Yeah. I'm interested in the idea that because it was written in a form that was like recognizable to academia, then it could function within that world. I wonder if maybe the question actually of asking you to talk to me about a text that is somehow meaningful is also making a replication of that, right? Like asking you to show me something that I recognize. Yeah, I think that's a really important uh, question for sure. And it goes back to your earlier one around the importance of, of art writing in Hawaii now. I'm an artist, but I have to write now because the work that I make, um, no matter how understood it is by the communities that I'm a part of. Uh, if it's not written about, it doesn't really exist uh, for a certain audience at a certain time in a certain place. And as an educator working within the University of Hawaii system, teaching classes on Hawaiian contemporary art, if I don't have material that I can share with students, um, with department chairs, with committees that evaluate the work that I'm doing, it becomes a lot harder for me to do that work. It can still be done, but it requires a lot more explanation. And so I'm at a point, a lot of folks are at a point right now where the explanation is, it just takes too much time. Yeah. And it's time that can be invested uh, in community and uh, in the work that we actually want to do and that needs to be done. So I'm, I'm kind of writing for me as a way to no longer have to waste time explaining what I already know or what the folks that I'm working with already know. Because we can just point to a text, we can send a PDF, and we don't have to have unnecessarily long email exchanges or in-person interrogations around the work that we're doing. We can simply gesture towards something that's been published 
and uh, have a conversation after whoever is demanding an explanation takes the time to to read um, what's available to them. And so a lot of folks kind of push back against me trying to get them to share their stories with me and with collaborators so that we can get them into text on their behalf. Because basically what we're asking them to do is the same thing that we're resisting uh, when others ask us to do it. And we're at a place right now with um, Kanako Ivi Creative Expression where we, since the mid-2010s, we now have three or four times as many texts on contemporary art uh, by Kanako Ivi, by Native Hawaiians, as we did then. So there's a sort of acceleration that's happening. But at the same time, there are also a lot of stories that remain to be written about. And... A lot of stories that folks want to write but can't write until other stories have been written first hmm. um, because we sort of need to establish this foundation, shared foundation, before we go off into the places we actually want to um, be in. And that's kind of where we're at now. And so Aipohaku, the exhibition that I spoke about earlier, that's helping us to lay some of that groundwork or to... Um, to point towards the groundwork and the paths that have already been laid and carved. So we're assembling, you know, pretty much every review we can find on um, Hawaiian contemporary art that's been written here in Hawaii since the 70s, compiling all of that source material alongside, I mean, it's not exhaustive, but pretty much every essay that's been written about Hawaiian contemporary art over the past 30 years. So that students um, within these environments no longer have to ask professors that don't know anything about what they're interested in for this information. And in that sense, they can maintain a different kind of relationship with their, with their um, professors, one that doesn't make them feel insecure about not knowing something or not being able to address a student's needs because these students will now have source material they can pick up and flip through on their own. And in that sense, I think kind of bypass the, the biases of um, the department that they're in. Yeah. And we're only able to do that by presenting the exhibition within that very department. In the same way that Mahilani writes about only being able to change or move in a certain direction within an institution. I'm curious about how translation works. Um, within your own practice, uh, mm. but also, and then also maybe if we can talk about how it's working within these sorts of tactics that you were sure. describing, because the text yeah. that you wrote about her text appears in both languages. What language did you write it in? So the language that I wrote the text in is English, and it was translated by an amazing scholar and linguist, Kjell Nesmith. And Kjell Nesmith's work really helps to return our work to the place that it's coming from, but in a language that, in, you know, in my case, I don't speak fluently. So a lot of folks talk about, like, you know, kind of jokingly, uh, like speaking Hawaiian in English or what it means to, to think in a certain way, to think in a way that's culturally informed by, in this case, um, being Hawaiian, but to write in a way that is, is not. And then to have those thoughts return to a different source 
becomes, yeah, a totally, it's a, tran- it's a, trans- it's a transformation. Um, and to be given a, an opportunity by someone like Kael Nismith to then learn more about um, a language because your work now appears in it is another kind of gift of translation. Um, if the writer takes the time to work through that translation and um, think about the decisions that the translator made, I think that feeds back and is incorporated into, um, yeah, into future writing. And, you know, I think there's a big effort, not just here in Hawaii, and it's ongoing to um, honor native languages uh, in their homelands that in many cases, they have been made illegal to speak for decades, um, have been erased and silenced, and that certain generations have a lot of shame around not being able to speak, uh, not being able to teach their children or their grandchildren how to speak because their parents and grandparents were told that it was shameful to do as much or were beaten for speaking in Hawaiian or were excluded from all kinds of environments because of the languages that they spoke. So it's important um, to a lot of folks working in the arts here in Hawaii now to make an effort to um, have Hawaiian language be present in intro wall text, to be present in uh, artwork labels, to be present in catalog essays, when and where appropriate, and I think more and more often uh, as as time goes by. And Keanu Smith's translation of the text that I wrote about Mahelani Dudua's essay is another kind of small attempt to move that conversation forward. And that came from the editors, uh, from Leuli especially, who whose relationship to language kind of constantly inspires me because the ways that we speak change the ways that we think and work and understand ourselves in the world. I was listening to your rereading of the Dudua text and she starts it by talking about the rituals she goes through before, like every morning before yeah. getting down to work from sweeping the floor to prayer. Um, and I yeah. wanted to frame the question in that way for you. Like, what do you do before you write? How do you start? As someone who doesn't have a kind of active writing practice, but is writing when I'm asked to, hmm. I usually start by listening to somebody else telling me what they need written. Um, and that can be many things. Sometimes it's working with artists to help them articulate their practice in words. Other times it's hearing from folks that are working in in more academic context, what kinds of essays or texts they're missing in their classrooms. Uh, And sometimes it's kind of way for me to work through my own issues around um, different things. So usually I start, my practice writing starts by listening. Um, Listening to what's needed and then translating that in, into words. I don't have any rituals in the way that Mahalani discussed her rituals, but I think that's because um, Mahalani was a writer before she was an artist. 
Yeah, in that text, she was making her first piece of art that was not her first essay. And so I think in a lot of ways, maybe my practices around writing are still very young and they're in the process of becoming a personal ritual um, or ritualized in a personal way. So maybe uh, we can talk about this in a few years and I'll have a different answer than the one I just gave you. But that's sort of where I'm at right now. (laughs) So you were an artist before you were a writer. What was that transition like? I think what spurred that for me is um, that there were no texts written by Hawaiian artists about Hawaiian contemporary art that I could draw on and reference when I was going through my own pursuit of higher education. And so in the absence of those texts, a lot of times I was referencing interviews or conversations that I was having with folks, but that hadn't made their way into... um, yeah, that more structured form. And so going through that process as a student pursuing their degree in curatorial studies, I was, I was motivated to write because I didn't want that to be an experience that students who pursued degrees after me in those kinds of environments had. So was the impetus to enter curatorial studies from a, from a similar sort of impulse? From being an artist to being a curator? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. There, were, there was no one here making exhibitions um, that centered, centered on the perspectives or even in, included the artists that I thought should be uh, a part of those events. Pursuing a degree in curatorial studies was about essentially advocating for artists as an artist whose friends and family were not being supported by institutions in the ways that uh, I thought they should. But, you know, maybe just beyond what I thought, they just weren't being supported at all. So the next question, I feel like you've already spoken to it, but maybe we can put another point on it. Who do you write for? Um, right now I'm, I'm writing with a lot of collaborators and together we are writing for art and art history education in Hawaii, specifically within the university context, which right now is lacking in a lot of ways. So we're trying to reconstruct a part of a much larger story that we've all been told in different ways over our lives, but um, it remains to be written down in a way that can be utilized in those environments of, of higher education. So that's sort of who, who we are writing for right now. I also write for, for artists and for friends to help them tell their story in a medium that they're not particularly comfortable with. Right. Um, and that writing for artist friends recently has also been about making films for artist friends as well. And so the writing sort of feeds into the production of uh, short artist videos. Mm. Um, and in that sense, is maybe serving a secondary function. Um, which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a drink with? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm down to have a drink with most people. Um, <laughs> what writer would I want to have a drink with? Let's see. Um, well, actually, uh, he's still alive, but he's not drinking anymore. 
So we okay. sort of missed our uh, moment f- for sharing drinks. His name's Uncle Yamai Kalani Kalahele. And Uncle Yamai is really a pillar within many communities here. But he's been writing poetry, making art, and playing music for literally half a century. So I would love to sit down with Uncle Yamai and have a drink because it would probably end with him reciting poems of his friends and maybe playing some music. But yeah, Uncle Yamai for sure. What is the last thing that you wrote that you feel good about? Um, I don't feel good about things often. So that's a difficult question for me. But the last, the last piece of writing that I was a part of that I felt was contributing to a larger discourse in a meaningful way um, is a, a piece that I'm working on with my friend and frequent collaborator, Josh Tengan. Uh, it's about our experience making Aipohaku stone eaters, a reflection on the, the exhibition making process, the sort of stakes of the arguments that we were putting for um, the outcomes and our intentions. It's being peer reviewed right now, so I'm not sure if it'll make it to publication, but that's a text that I feel is doing something. Before that, it was probably an extended text that I wrote about native and non-native collaboration against US empire uh, here in Hawaii, specifically looking at native, non-native artists, collaboratives. Um, so that discussed the work of Hanani K. Trask and Ed Grevy, um, Namako Kaina, Elapayo Press, Pili Amo'o, and Aipohaku Press. And that was published as a part of um, the Hawaii Triennial 2022, which I helped to co-curate. And that text was meaningful to me because it told a story of art in Hawaii through a particular form of alignment or a non-alignment. And those stories of collaboration across Native and non-Native communities through our creative practices are really powerful to me, specifically right now, kind of being reminded of of those forms of working in the moment that we're currently living through, where I think identities are being weaponized uh, against one another in ways that they haven't been for a while. You know, from my perspective, maybe since the 1990s, but I think that text was significant because it helped me remember um, the important work that has already happened between Native and non-Native collaborators within the arts against those who have occupied, oppressed, uh, and silenced our uh, respective cultures in the homes that uh, we live in and share. Can I come back to you saying that you don't feel good about a lot of things? Is that specifically about your art practice? Like, do you do you struggle with feeling good about about output? Um, I think I, I feel a sense of um, satisfaction and acceptance um, with much of the work that I do, which is maybe why I continue to do it. But in terms of feeling good about it, there's just so much to be done. Just just speaking about the arts um, context here in Hawaii, there's so much work, so much change that needs to take place that has not, that it's hard to feel good about anything. Okay. 
I'll speak for myself. I'm not in a place where I can feel good about the work that has been done because there's so much that has to happen um, before that. Yeah, before that can happen. But there, is, I, I feel the work I'm a part of is is meaningful. Um, it contributes to larger efforts that have been taking place for generations. And in that sense is, is significant um, to me. But I don't know if I would ever describe um, how I feel about the work that I'm doing as good. Yeah. Okay. And maybe on to that, the question that we usually ask is, what is the text that you want to write, but you know that you won't? I mean, feel free to answer that question, but um, I want to also sort of expand it into what is the text that you want to write, given what you've just said about how there's so much work that needs to be done. Yeah. There are a lot of texts that I'd love to to write or co-write, uh, as many here would, that we are not able to, to do so yet. And in part, that has to do with what has been written and the importance of reinforcing a sort of continuity and not breaking from um, the paths that have been carved for us, but instead helping to, to move them um, onward. And so I think in that, in, in that regard, the pace at, at which we write is limited by how much needs to be written. And we can't move to an end or further along that path to write something that we want to write until we've written those texts that need to be written. Uh, having said that, you know, when I'm feeling particularly selfish about what I want to do, I sometimes think about what it would mean to write an essay that addresses some of the issues between what I still perceive to be a sort of um, gendered understanding of Hawaiian contemporary art. Gendered in the sense that there are practices, carving, for example, that have been maintained, um, guarded, and upheld by certain genders over the years. And sometimes that can be a really important work uh, to do. And in others, it can become a very oppressive practice. So right now here in Hawaii, uh, there are folks who identify as women that carve, but they don't have the same kind of support or visibility as those folks who identify as men. And the discussion of anyone who's non-binary is barely even a part of the conversation at all. And so, you know, there are reasons why carving is the way it is here. And those reasons have to do with traumas that have been endured um, as systems of governance changed. But that would be a piece that I would love to be a part of, um, sort of working through this idea of what is kapu and what is noa, what is available and what is withheld or mm. closed as it relates to our artistic practices here in Hawaii, those that remain gendered for better or for worse. And that's something that I had a chance to speak with um, Megan about during the recent residency that you folks put on in collaboration with Forge Project. And, and it's not an experience that is specific to Hawaii. 
there there are still these creative practices that are very gendered throughout Moana Nui. And one way to help move them in a different direction is to write. Um, write about the work that can't necessarily be done because of what is and isn't couple or no within our communities with respect to our creative practices. So um, that would be a piece that I'd love to be a part of. And maybe we're closer to writing that today than we ever have been before. Thank you for that. Um, and yeah, I guess the last question is, what is the pleasure of writing? Is there pleasure in writing hmm. for you? If there is pleasure in writing for me right now, uh, it has more to do with reading what has been written than it does with um, writing what hasn't been. So a lot of times I don't feel any sense of pleasure until I've had a chance to share what I've been writing with those that uh, I'm writing about. And together we sort of read what has been written and rewrite what has been written in a way that honors um, not just what I want to write, but what the folks that I'm writing about want written about themselves and their practices and the issues they've engaged with and the histories they're a part of. So I think in that sense, the pleasure in writing for me is um, also about co-writing. It's about writing together with, with others, with collaborators, and it's about um, overwriting what I have written as an individual that in turn allows um, other voices into a text that is authored by me. Um, and really that, that idea of a single author is totally absurd. And so maybe that's another pleasure that I sometimes um, get through writing is kind of understanding that an author is always already um, many. Yeah. And bringing those other voices into a text is, is pleasurable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. Thank you again, Drew. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Momus the Podcast is produced by Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. Jacob Irish is our editor. Thanks to Drew Kahoina Broderick for his contribution to this season. If you like the show, please think about supporting us through Patreon at patreon.com backslash momusart. Your support makes a huge difference to our extremely small team and goes directly to paying contributors and staff. And if you'd like to learn more about supporting Momus, feel free to contact me about making a donation directly, skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 47 of Momus, the podcast.